0: Hello, and welcome to the fourth episode of the ESET Research Podcast. I'm Ari Goretsky, ESET's distinguished researcher and your host for today's podcast. This is a special edition of the ESET Research Podcast and was recorded live at the RSA 2022 conference in San Francisco. Today's ESET Research Podcast is a double feature. We'll begin with my colleague, Cameron Camp, interviewing his fellow researchers, Uri Janosik, and Philip Mazin about the spate of announcements involving artificial intelligence and machine learning at the RSA conference. Do they live up to the hype? In the second part, the tables are turned and my colleague Andre Kubovich asks Cameron Camp about how secure medical devices really are. So we're here
1: at RSA. And uh, we're joined now, today's discussion is about machine learning and uh, AI, and we have a couple folks with us, Gerard Janosik, who's the head of Automated Threat and Detection and Machine Learning, and Philippe Mazan, who's the uh, senior uh, machine learning engineer. And we're going to take a look today at at some of the claims. We were walking the floor, and we were looking at the booths, and uh, there's a lot of vendor claims that are out there uh, surrounding machine learning. NAI uh what do you think is uh the next the next
2: big thing you've seen or is it mostly hype and more of the same? Uh well most of the things that I have been that I've seen uh on the on the conference like in the last 4 days was mostly mostly really hype. Uh, a lot of those claims uh, especially on the expo floor was uh, really preposterous uh like saying that math uh, will will solve everything and that you don't need any updates that's 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 actually not true uh, this is this is not the approach that we have been uh we have been working on uh we at ESAT uh have been uh, have our experiences with the machine learning and artificial intelligence for more than thirty years and uh first uh first actual uh for sexual neural networks which have been helping to improve our detection made its way to our product uh in 1998 uh so it was much more before that those vendors right now uh are claiming that the machine learning is something new uh and uh, and they are trying to present us this as a, as a uh silver bullet technology uh for the threat detection that's that's uh Again, this is, this, these are absurd claims, so uh, you need to be more uh, vigilant to, uh, to such, uh, such claim of the, of the vendors and more looking at uh, what is ex- exactly going on in the, in the technology.
1: And, how do you, and do you think the machine learning uh, is growing in meaningful ways relative to security? There's a lot of new platforms we think about, like the cloud, uh, Philip, do you have any thoughts on that or um is is machine learning uh, helping out, going to be able to help out security in ways that are be meaningful in the next several years?
3: Yeah, so one thing that comes to my mind right now is that we are all already using cloud in conjunction with uh, machine learning and that is in a way that we can synchronously tell our endpoints whether uh, they are encounter something suspicious or not and as I said, that that's uh, facilitated by our LightGrid, our cloud technologies uh, that has uh, our machine learning model sitting at the back end um, on our server farm. And so, there
1: be, you think there'll be a point in the future, near future? Because some suggest, when you're talking to vendors, that machine learning is just going to do security. It's kind of fire and forget. Are we at a situation where that's realistic now or in the future? I mean, can you just push a button and it does machine learning and it fixes security? So
3: many of the talks we have seen at RSA were exactly presenting machine learning like like you've just said, that you you just sprinkle ML all over your approaches and it automatically erases all real problems, but that's not really the case. As we've seen many, many of the talks, like, um, we have visited half a dozen ML related. And, uh, I have a personal feeling that they have just sprinkled these ML slash AI part all over their talk. So they, they just get, get uh, recognized and, and maybe their product will be pitched further in. But in reality, it's, it's it's not that simple. You have to have a huge team of uh, not only machine learning guys but also data scientists. You have to have quality data, and that is really not that simple to achieve. And so terms like deep learning—that's an—is that a nonsense term? I mean, is that one
1: we hear? I saw it in several booths, several vendors. Deep learning and variations on Is more of the same, or is there anything to it?
2: Well, oh, deep learning is a nice term, but it's uh, not actually describing uh, what people understand under it. Because usually, uh, when somebody says that neural networks and up to it, you have a uh, deep learning. Well, that, that's not the case uh, because the, the the artificial intelligence in this way doesn't doesn't work like uh, what the people think that okay some in some in some way resembling how the human uh, human mind works. Uh, it's not that way because imagine that. Uh, deep learning is usually about uh like bring bringing a lot of uh a, a huge data set uh really good described uh, labeled properly uh and uh presented uh, to the algorithm which will which is then able uh to do some abstraction and uh can you can we imagine that that this is this is a way how human mind works it it doesn't it 's not like when you when you have a child uh, it is basically right away able to recognize that okay on this picture there is a cat, but if you want to do this with uh with a computer uh using the neural networks or deep learning algorithms, you need to present uh present to it like thousands of pictures of uh, of cats in order to make him recognize that, that another picture is uh, is like a cat, but this is not the way how the human body works, of course right. You you don't present uh to your five-year-old or child like thousands of pictures of, of cats in order to get get him recognized that this is a uh this is a, this is a cat. So so it's a nice concept, but we need to understand it in the way how the how the computer operates, not how the human human brain operates. So in the next several years we may see some improvements, but it actually
1: sounds like a lot of this technology has been around for quite some time, and it's just down to the practitioners and the experience that people have using it. It's not something you, you click a box, you have a booth at RSA, and suddenly you're doing, <laughs> and you're, you're kind of smiling, but you're, suddenly you're doing security. And so um, what, what new technologies do you think we will see over the next several years that people should keep an eye on relative to security? some things we should be watching for this time next year at RSA or in the coming years?
2: Well definitely the machine learning and the artificial intelligence and everything about like processing of the huge uh, huge amount of data uh, in these times that that will be still a a huge topic right? Uh, So it's not like we solve everything right now in the terms of of, of uh, like machine learning processing it's it's evolving and there will be new new things coming but it's not like that uh next year there will be like a huge breakout and uh there will be this uh, like fire and forget uh machine learning type of security solution this, this this will not happen and i don't think that it will happen in my lifetime that there will be uh there will be a uh, general artificial intelligence that will be able to operate absolutely, absolutely independent uh, and autonomous, and especially not in the terms of cybersecurity, because that's extremely complicated uh, and complex area. So, Philip,
3: what do you see? What's going to be in the
2: future? What are we going to be?
3: Uh, as you already said, I don't expect any any major breakthroughs. But what can be interesting to see is uh, to see more applications related to cybersecurity regarding, for example, new new interesting architectures of neural nets, seeing uh, new hardware improvements, for example, new GPUs, TPUs, new um, inference modes, for example. So I'm not going to go into details, but there can be significant progress, but I don't expect anything like major. And anything else that came to mind just walking around RSA or in your interactions?
1: You guys attended several sessions, some good, some not as memorable. Um, Is there anything else that you want to bring to bear on wrapping up this session here, recorded at
3: RSA? There was one talk that was actually the first uh, that we attended at RSA. And the talk was um, actually quite skeptical about using um, and marketing ML in cybersecurity and the guy was um, talking about uh, what questions should uh, potential customers ask uh, the, the vendors and that they should be quite skeptical and ask the correct questions. For example, how do you evaluate your approach? What data have you used? What features are you using? And going into detail just to uncover whether the, the potential vendor is just uh, hiding behind the ML um, curtain, so to say. <laughs> so
1: those are good questions. So there were some good tips. You did get some good tips out of RSA. Thank you so much for joining us today, and uh, we'll look forward to seeing you at SR- RSA or at some security, uh, some security conference very soon. Thank you very much, and good evening.
0: Thank you, Philip, Uri, and Cameron for sharing your insights with us. Coming up next, Andrei Kubovich has an in-depth discussion with Cameron Camp on the challenges of securing medical devices.
4: So One of the topics discussed at this year's RSA conference is the security of medical devices, which are crucial for survival of millions of patients worldwide. Now, despite many of these devices being quite old, some of them being around for 15 plus years, they still provide the intended service, uh, although their security is quite lacking right now. So is their hacking just uh, a theoretical scenario or a real threat and is it increasing over time well as
1: you mentioned there's a very long development cycle with medical devices they're expected to be in service for many years you know unlike a laptop which you might purchase every two years to four years medical devices take a long time and a lot of money to develop and therefore they expect quite a lifespan of them also they perform a single or just very narrow scope of functions So they don't do everything like a general-purpose computer. They will just monitor uh, patient statistics and report them. So they don't do very many things, but they have to do them very well and very reliably. And that's quite a different model than we're used to in thinking about uh, PCs, laptops, and the things we interact with every day like a phone.
4: But security isn't one of them.
1: Security, when they were developed years ago or sometimes decades ago, was mostly an afterthought. When they think about security, they think about what happens if we physically lose a device, meaning somebody puts it in the trunk of their car accidentally and it it winds up out of the facility. They were only thinking about physical security. They were never thinking about network security or the ability to implant devices into medical devices that allowed them to function in scary ways.
4: So why is it such a tough sell to like convince people in healthcare to replace the old devices despite them still working but being lacking on the security end. Why are they like against those changes? I don't think
1: fundamentally they're against those changes, but they have a totally different focus than we like to think about in security. And that focus is patient health, patient outcomes, and how to solve you know, they're confronted with a sick person and how to confront life threat potentially life threatening health situations first, technology second. So as technologists, we think of technology first, and because we're sort of fans of technology, that is not the case. They want to not have technology get in the way with
4: saving someone's life, perhaps. I mean, it makes sense to save someone's life, to put it first. But still, if the security is lacking, isn't that putting him at risk at the same time? Oh, indeed it is now. And so
1: uh, to your original question, which was how do we get upgraded devices in the medical suite in the hospital organization, that question is one of economics. It's one of the practicalities of modern devices cost a lot more. They have a lot more functionality, and especially because quite often because they want a seamless experience for the patient, they want those devices to connect to the network. And as soon as we in the industry here network and medical devices and patient records all coming across the network we get very nervous
4: in the last let's say 15 years uh there were also some counter arguments saying that we don't have the technology that could like control these devices over a single pane of glass or like to get them all together into like one controlling environment did we Developed the technology in those 15 years did the technology move into the age where we can control even the older devices that are out there
1: i think a similar approach to the industrial control systems where uh, again they have very long lifespan they're they're all about availability you know what's the uptime of generator what's the uptime of a water turbine or something like that the same is true in medical um and so if we talk about how to hook them up or, or get extend a useful life out of them. We're really talking about putting gateways around them and then securing those gateways because the interfaces these devices may have, some do, some don't, but the interfaces they may have are probably serial interfaces. They're probably very, very old interfaces made to do a limited amount of reporting and perhaps a limited amount of configuration. So we take them, we run them through a special purpose medical gateway, now we can record patient records to a server that sits in the hospital, suite, in this hospital IT department. And that's how we're dealing with it. So we're connecting very old devices with very insecure protocols across a gateway we hope for the best.
4: When we're talking about this, uh, we are always working with the idea of, of an attack. Is it something that is already happening or are we just in the phase where we are trying to avoid that scenario?
1: So... When there's a new attack service that kind of comes to the front, first, you'll see proofs of concept. And we always seem to have the same argument about, well, it's just a proof of concept. But in fact, if someone's digitally rattling the doors on your house or rattling the doors on a hospital, um, it, it, it takes developers have to sit in a room, they have to spend a lot of money to develop these proofs of concept They want a return on their investment. So you have to follow that money or the initiatives and find what it is they want. And why are they willing to invest so much to do proof of concept against medical devices if they don't intend to use them? That seems foolish.
4: If we talk the attacks, do they scale well? Would those scenarios that we already seen as proof of concept work on uh, large masses or are they more of a targeted nature so i pick one patient that is high profile and i'm gonna target him and maybe want to put him in harm's way
1: i mean it's a combination so it depends on what the the goal really is the attacker if the attacker is to ransom a hospital uh, there's ways they can do that and the ways they have been doing that and so in terms of inflicting pain to the hospital system and requiring a payment. That is one way to do it. Um, Another way to do that is a targeted attack against a high-value individual. Sometime back, there was a a high-ranking U.S. official that got a pacemaker implanted. One of the options for that pacemaker was an external, basically remote control to monitor to change the rhythm. And they specifically opted not to get that external feature because this was a very high profile political figure when and they were quite nervous about being attacked in the future, keep in mind that once uh an attack is successful a proof of concept is successful, the question is what is the total attack surface that's already out in the in the in the open out resting in patients and implanted devices or anything else? Well, that number is a hard number to guess, but certainly. We don't want to have a situation where attackers can attack people that have had a procedure in the past uh, and go and, and start hacking embedded devices and cause potential life-threatening situation. True, true.
4: Uh, I know that you also have some experience in disassembling medical devices, some of them. Uh, what would you say from that experience? Uh, how was there... Maybe even the physical or hardware security.
1: Very often, medical devices were set to not be tampered with, but that was basically in conjunction with the calibration of the device. So, calibration labs would need to come in periodically and certify that basically the accuracy. So, if a device says it's going to dispense 50 milliliters, it's really 50 milliliters because, of course, that's critical to care. However, those protections were really aimed at that. I don't think that they really envisioned that there would be sort of a level of focus where with current techniques to evade those uh, tamper detections. And so we have very sophisticated uh, techniques now that we maybe didn't have 10, 15 years ago. And it's in some cases trivial to bypass those, those tamper-proof protections they did have.
4: Are there easy ways to fix that problem?
1: There is interesting talks and about providing some kind of attestation or some kind of verification that a product has not been tampered with. And we see this in the industry anyway um, here at RSA where they're trying to find some level of accountability for a supply chain, the whole supply chain. And in this case, that would include what has happened to the devices prior to manufacture, during manufacture, and then what happens to them in terms of physical possession of the devices. Can we, do we know where they are all the time? And the hospitals are doing this anyway. They're, 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 they're wanting to understand, know and understand where the patient is all the time. Um, so they can make sure the patient gets to the right clinic and the right healthcare is administered. So these are bolt on. Initiatives that happen after the fact. We're not to the stage where that is really going to be full fledged in a current environment with current devices, unless the hospital replaces all the devices all at once, which of course is not practical.
4: In your findings, have you found good avenues to attack those, like hardware flaws or weak anti tampering protection?
1: Certainly. Again, with modern techniques, we've progressed quite a bit. And also there's a whole movement of fixing things on your own, repairing things on your own, that is not necessarily brought to bear in medical devices. But there's been a sense that people have been trained to modify their increasingly complex devices they bought from the store at retailers. And they've been frustrated by manufacturers trying to put protections in place, so they couldn't do that, so they had to rely on uh, the dealer or the factory or somebody to do factory repairs. And that frustration has yielded a set of tools that are widely available and quite cost-effective that allow average users to go out and um, take things apart and understand things that, in this case, when that's brought to bear on medical devices, is of certain concern.
4: That's what I wanted to ask. Like, If you fix your computer or your mobile phone and you do something wrong, the dangers are not that high. But if you tamper with your medical device, your insulin pump, for example, then the dangers are much greater.
1: Much greater, but the tools you may use to disassemble a very complicated phone, you may find the ability to use those on devices that are quite scary for patient health. Uh,
4: as far as I know, it's quite hard to get your hands on them. Uh, is this a good approach on the side of manufacturers? Is it security through obscurity? Or should we move to the era of this, like what we do with the software now? So bug bounties and like, proper vulnerability disclosure?
1: There's a few factors in that. One is... There are not that many manufacturers out there. And while there's more devices all the time, those manufacturers have to have the culture that you mentioned, where there's bug bounties, there's constructive engagement with researchers. Uh, At the moment, it's unclear to researchers, and it's unclear to medical manufacturers sort of how to deal with this. They can take notes from the software industry and from other industries and say, uh, this is something we should adopt and here are the dangers and here are the here are the concerns. But keep in mind their primary goal along with medical facilities keeping people alive and keeping very sick people from getting sicker, getting worse, and that's the primary focus. So there's a cultural shift that would have to happen as well. The problem is that the idea of security through obscurity or trying to say, put stern warnings. This was uh, very similar to the airline uh, question where hacking airplanes. Uh, basically, people said, we're going to impose so stiff a fines, the researchers really won't want to do anything. Of course, the response to that is, researchers where? Um, in some parts of the world, if you have basically limited number of suppliers for airplanes, and uh, we could say, well, we're the good guys, we're sort of doing this to help improve security, not break security. That's our motivation. But if people who have very different ideas of what is best for airplane safety or lack thereof all have access to the same devices, how long can the manufacturers play that game? And how's it going to come out? Well, I would argue by leaning into communities like here at RSA and the security community, which has already dealt with this in other realms we can bring some expertise and best practices to bear that would actually provide security in some ways to the process moving forward by the manufacturers and indeed some manufacturers have leaned into the process but certainly not all and certainly not to the extent uh, that we would be most comfortable with as researchers
0: This has been the fourth episode of the ESET Research Podcast. For the latest from ESET's researchers, follow us on Twitter at ESET Research and visit our blog at welivesecurity.com. You can find our podcast wherever you normally download your podcasts. If you have a question about the research discussed in this episode or a question that you'd like answered in a future episode of our podcast, email us at Research Podcast at ESET.com. The ESET Research Podcast has been a production of ESET, recorded by ESET's researchers from around the world, and produced with love and care in Bratislava, the gateway to Europe.